So I want to start this morning uh, with the story of Jason and Carrie Brown. They were a young couple, a young family, and they had been searching for a home to call their own space. They'd been renting, but now that they had a two-year-old, it was time for them to really settle down and, and find a place that they could make their home. And so they'd been searching throughout South Carolina, which was their home state, trying to find this, this perfect place. They had a tight budget, so it was hard to find something that fit their needs to have a growing family, but also uh, fit with, within what they could afford. And so they had this moment where they stumbled upon what they thought was the deal of a lifetime. They found a house in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains in South Carolina uh, that was a foreclosure. And so they got a five-bedroom, two-bathroom home for $75,000. And they eagerly uh, made the purchase and they moved their family in. And on this particular morning, uh, Carrie's husband, Jason, was out either running errands or he was at work. He, he was away. And Carrie's uncle said, hey, I would love to come just help you get situated. We can move stuff and, you know, just help it kind of feel like home. And so Carrie's uncle came and they're, they're moving some stuff around and it was a foreclosure. So there was some weird stuff that was just left there that the outgoing person just decided to leave. And so on one particular wall, there was a bookcase. And when they moved this bookcase, they discovered a secret passageway. Now, I've seen enough movies and TV shows to know it's almost never a good idea to go into this passageway. And it's never a good thing when you discover one. Unless it's filled with like buried treasure or something. But that never happens, right? This is where the ominous music would play in a TV show. So her and her uncle like trepid, with trepidation step into this uh, little passageway and they find a small room tucked back around the corner, just tiny. And the only thing in it is a post-it note that says, you found it, exclamation point. And then there's an email address. And they're thinking, what? I mean, what in the world? And so they email this email address and the person responds back to them. And lo and behold, it was the previous owner who had possessed the home. And he said, I wanted to leave a note for you because he says, this home has a severe mold problem. And what was their dream suddenly turned into a nightmare. And he said, what happened was uh, the previous owner who had two small children, he said, we moved into this home. And not long after, uh, he said, my kids began to get sick. And he said, we, we couldn't figure it out. They started to have respiratory issues and they got more and more sick. We went to the doctor and the doctor couldn't figure out anything. He said, finally, we did air quality tests in the home. And that's when we discovered the presence of toxic mold. He said, I couldn't sell the home because I had to legally disclose now that there was toxic mold present in it. I couldn't do anything. He said, but I couldn't leave my family in this toxic environment. He said, it was literally making us sick. So he said, the only thing I could do was declare bankruptcy and we walked away. But he said, I was horrified a few weeks later to see the bank, our lender, turned around, put some paint on the house and was attempting to sell it. And he said, the problem is the house looks fine. Even the contractors who did some of the prep work to resell the home said, we didn't know. You couldn't tell. For all intents and purposes from the outside, everything looked fine. The problem was, was that inside the home, it was literally toxic. And so the previous owner said, I knew I had to leave a warning. The bank refused to listen to me. I was afraid if I left a note, they'd throw it away. So I left it here in hopes that you would find it and I could warn you to get out of this house because literally it will make you sick. It looks fine, but it's not fine deep underneath. I, I think in a lot of ways that story serves as a good metaphor for where our culture is and where I think our culture is headed. 
I want to suggest to you that I think our culture is by and large headed in a direction that from the outside might look fine and feel fine and our culture is going through a lot of steps to say that it is fine, but I think our culture is headed in a direction that for all intents and purposes is toxic and dysfunctional. And and I want us to wrestle with this question, why can't God accept me as I am? I I think this is a fundamental question that our culture wrestles with. Right? And just like that home that had the toxic mold problem, from the outside it looks fine, it seems fine, even initially it feels fine. The problem is you stay in that toxic culture long enough and it makes you sick. The symptoms start to come to the surface. And I think we live in a culture that is moving further and further away from God's truth and from the presence of God's relationship. We live in a culture that wants to rewrite and redefine reality according to its standards. It's a culture that by and large says there's no problem with sin. It's a culture that wants to argue that everyone should just accept us as we are. It's a culture that would tell us a terrible lie, which is to live your own truth. Speak your own truth. Can I just tell you, I think that's a terrible idea. And and to be honest, I don't really care what your version of the truth is. I'm sorry if that's offensive. What I do care about is the standard of God's truth that he calls us to align our life with. And culture says, no, 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 there's no standard of truth. You live your own version of this truth. And then culture has the audacity to say, you should just accept me as I am. And so culture functions with what I'm going to call cultural tolerance. And by cultural tolerance, I'm going to define it this way. It's an undiscriminate, undiscerned, uncritical acceptance. Culture says, I want you to, without discernment and uncritically, accept me as I am. And and I think culture says, why can't God do the same thing, right? Christians are often described culturally as being narrow-minded or bigoted because we believe there's one way to salvation through Jesus, right? The book of Acts tells us there's one name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And culture says, that's small, that's narrow, Culture says, why can't you just accept me as I am without discernment? Don't think about whether my life aligns with God's truth or not. Don't criticize me. Just accept me. And and here's what I'm going to tell you. This is the argument that I want to make today. If we're really honest, none of us actually want God to accept us as we are. That's the argument that I want to make. And the reason for that is God accepting me as I am would be the equivalent of this toxic house filled with mold, knowing the situation and saying, you know what? It's no big deal. I'm not going to mitigate or remediate the mold that's in there. We're just going to accept this house as it is. You would look at that and you'd say, well, that's a terribly foolish idea. That's going to make you sick. And yet we, we live in a culture that says, just accept me as I am, uncritically, undiscerned, just accept me and the lifestyle and the way that I'm choosing to live without discernment, just accept it. But the problem is for God to accept us as we are would be to encourage and empower us to live in sin. And you live in that long enough and the symptoms begin to bubble up to the surface. And the reality is that sin leads to death and separation from God. And so no, God will not accept you as you are because that would be to empower you to live in a place that would ultimately lead to your harm and to your detriment. I don't think that's actually what we want. I want to submit to you that the loving response to actually love someone is a call to truth in Jesus that brings about our true flourishing, right? If my family is living in a toxic mold infested home, I'm going to do everything I can to warn them, to get them out of there. I don't want anybody in that environment. It is not loving to say, you know what? You live your truth. 
You think this house is great? I know it's got issues, but you know what? You do you. It's fine. And we would look at that and go, are you crazy? That's going to have serious health consequences. Right? We would warn them. The loving response is not to look at a culture that's going to hell in a handbasket and say, you know what? Live your own truth. That is not a loving response. Right? God accepting us as we are would not be a loving response. Rather, God calls us to truth in him where true flourishing is found. And I want to suggest to you that the short answer to that question, why can't God accept me as I am, is because that God is holy and we are sinful. And a holy God cannot overlook sin and dwell among an unholy people. There, there's the short answer to that question. Now, the rest of this message, I, I hope to, to further flesh that out for you. God is holy. And he calls us to be holy as he is holy. He's not just going to overlook the sin that's present in our life and empower us to live in it. So I want to suggest to you that God loves you as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you as you are. Because God loves you, he calls you to new life and transformation. He calls us to confession and repentance, to turn our lives around towards him, to live in a new direction in which we are in pursuit of him. If you've been following along with this series and doing the study guide that goes with it, uh, the readings each week are walking you through the story of Exodus. And as you engage the story of Exodus, I think in a powerful way, it communicates and teaches this idea that a holy God calls us to a new and holy life in him. That God does not just accept us as we are, but God has a standard for how we're to live. So if you remember the story of the Exodus, beginning in Exodus chapter one, it's this time in the history of the people of Israel where they are living in slavery and in captivity in Egypt. And the Pharaoh of Egypt, who's one of the most powerful military and political rulers of the time, is forcing the people of Israel to build his cities and to build his monuments. And it is a place of bitter oppression where the people of Israel are cruelly mistreated. And in Exodus chapter 3 that we looked at last week, there's this moment where God comes to Moses and he says, Moses, the cries and the suffering of my people have come up before me. And he raises up Moses as this leader. And he, he says, Moses, I want you to submit your plan to my purpose. And he raises up Moses as this leader to bring the people of Israel out of captivity, out of bondage, and bring them to a place of freedom in the promised land. And last week, we talked about how uh, throughout scripture, this language of the Exodus is used metaphorically to talk about our journey as believers, Right In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter draws on the Exodus and he quotes it and he says, for the believers, he says, once you were not a people. He says, but now you are God's chosen people. And uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9, you are a, a holy, royal people. You are a priesthood. You were to represent God to a lost and dying world because you have been called out of darkness into light. That's Exodus language that Peter uses. And what we realize is that in our own Exodus, we are set free from sin and brokenness and the bondage that sin brings. And we are called to live in the redemptive hope of Jesus. And not only that, but as a people who are called to be uh, representatives of God, we are to go back to a lost culture and bring people with us to call them to truth in Jesus. Now, what's interesting is as the Exodus story unfolds, there's this moment in Exodus chapter 25 through 27. If you did the readings this week, when you got to these chapters, right in the middle of this story is the description of the tabernacle. Now, what in the world is the tabernacle? 
Later, Solomon would build the temple. And the temple was a permanent structure that had a sanctuary, the the Holy of Holies, where God dwelled among the people of Israel. Now, the problem with the temple is it's built of stone and precious materials. It's a permanent structure that can't be moved. In Exodus, the people of Israel, they're still on the journey. They have not arrived yet. And so they need a mobile temple. And so the tabernacle is a tent-like structure that can be set up and torn down and it can move with the people on their journey. But in Exodus 25, God makes this declarative statement in verse 8. He says, then have them, this is the people of Israel, make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. And this beautiful truth is that as the people of Israel are leaving this place of slavery and heading towards freedom, the God of all creation says, I want to dwell among my people. But the problem is a holy God cannot dwell among an unholy people. Why is this? It is not because we would somehow make God unholy. That's impossible. God is holy. It's the very core and essence of who he is. He is pure. He is totally other. We cannot make God unholy. The reason an uh, unholy people cannot dwell in relationship with a holy God is that scripture tells us that our God is a consuming fire and for unholiness to be present fully in the God who is a consuming fire, we couldn't stand in his presence. We would be consumed in our unholiness. And yet this God says, I love my people so much. I want to dwell among them. And so God gives them this instruction for the tabernacle. And when we understand the tabernacle, we understand more of why God says, I can't just accept you as you are. Let me read this for you. We're going to read out of Hebrews chapter nine, because it serves as a great summary for the significance of the tabernacle. Would you read this with me? Hebrews chapter nine, verse one. It says, now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense, the gold-covered ark of the covenant. The ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover. We cannot discuss these things in detail now. What he means is go back to Exodus 25 to 27, read that. He says, I don't have time to go into all the detail. Verse six, he says, when everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That's to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. 
How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from sins committed under the first covenant. Uh, Noah, if you would, would you put up that uh, big picture of the story of scripture? I want us to walk through this and understand that we're at a turning point scripturally. You'll notice that the writer of Hebrews talks about the first covenant or the old covenant. This is the promise that God made to the people of Israel through Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm choosing you. You will be and your descendants will be my people and I will be your God. He says, through you, all nations will be blessed. And from that moment on, God chooses from among all the peoples of the world, the people of Israel to be his special possession. And it's through the people of Israel, through the line of David, that ultimately the Messiah will come. But what the writer of Hebrews says is that in Jesus, God is making a new covenant with his people. And so where the previous covenant had rules and instructions for worship and to to help sort of attend to our guilty conscience, he says the new covenant in Jesus is, is superior. It's this new covenant, this new promise, relational vow that God makes with us, which were adopted into this promise. Because the problem with the first covenant is that if I'm not an Israelite, I can't be part of that. But this new covenant in Jesus, we are adopted in as the sons and daughters of God because the blood of Jesus Christ makes us holy. Now, within all of this language of old and new covenant was this description of tabernacle worship. So, uh, Noah, if you would switch to the, the tabernacle complex. So this is what's described in detail in Exodus chapter 25 to 27, and it's what the writer of Hebrews talks through in sort of a summary. And I think, again, it's important that we understand the tabernacle, how it functioned, and its instructions for worship in order to understand the answer to this question, why can't God accept me as I am? Now, the tabernacle had sort of three core parts. The first is the courtyard. That's the outer area. You had the bronze altar where the sacrifices would have been placed on the fire and consumed. The bronze laver was a sort of washing station where the priests would would wash after performing the sacrifices. You had the slaughtering tables where the sacrificial animals would be put to death. And then inside of that, you had the holy place. And the holy place had the table of showbread, which was an indicator and a reminder of God's presence and provision, his sustenance among the people. You had the lampstand, which is a menorah. And it was a reminder of God revealing himself to his people in light and in truth. You had the altar of incense that was representative of God's presence and of the prayers of the people rising before him. And the holy place is separated from the courtyard by a curtain meaning you and I would not be able to go in there. The priest could, and they would regularly go in to carry out their ministry. This meant taking out the old showbread, which the priest would eat and replacing it with new, making sure the the lampstand was always lit. It was to never be extinguished. Now, beyond the holy place was the holy of holies or the most holy place. And even the priests could not enter the most holy place. Only the high priest could enter that, and only one time a year on the day of atonement. Now, on the Day of Atonement, it was the practice of the people of Israel to take a scapegoat. And what they would do with the scapegoat is the priest would ceremonially ceremoniously place his hands on the goat and he would uh, place the sins of the people on the scapegoat and it would be set free into the desert, presumably to die. 
And it was a stark reminder of the consequences of the sins of the people. And then the priest would come back and offer sacrifices uh, on behalf of the nation of Israel for sins that they had committed, both willfully and in ignorance. And only after those sacrifices were performed would the priest enter the Holy of Holies. Now, in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, which we have a a representative picture of. And on the Ark of the Covenant, those two winged creatures, that's the cherubim. And that, t- that cover to the Ark was called the mercy seat or the atonement cover. And for the people of Israel, it was above the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat was the place where the spirit and the presence of God dwelled among the people. Now, go back to that tabernacle complex quick. Hopefully you're putting together some problems here. Now, the tabernacle is a reminder I mean, imagine this, you're wandering through the desert and every time you stop to camp, you see the tabernacle set up and it is a reminder that God is dwelling among his people. The problem is the Ark of the Covenant where the presence of God is, is in the Holy of Holies and I can't go in there. I'm not allowed into the very presence of God. Why? Because I'm a sinful person and God is holy. And so the, the, the tabernacle was a reminder first and foremost of God's holiness It was a reminder that God was utterly holy and pure. He is totally other. He is not like us. And I don't have the freedom to just approach him whenever I want. Only the priest can do that because the priest is the mediator. He goes between God and us because God is holy and we are sinful. Now, in another way, the tabernacle was a stark reminder of God's presence and his sustenance. Because everywhere the people of Israel set up camp, they would see the tabernacle set up and they would know that in the holy place is the lampstand, the reminder of God's truth and of his light, his revelation of his truth to his people. And in there was the showbread, a reminder of God's sustenance and provision for the people. And they would be reminded, yes, our God dwells among us. And yet the tabernacle was also a stark reminder of the reality and consequences of sin that sin brings death and sin brings separation. And and here's my hunch. My sense is that we take sin far too lightly because for us, sin is an abstract concept. We can look up the Greek word hamartia, right? And it means missing the mark. And we can talk about, you know, sin is a rebellion against God's truth and a rejection of, of relationship with him. It's a turning our back. We can talk about that. And yet it remains sort of abstract. But for the people of Israel, I want you, I want you to imagine this, right? Imagine that you have a newborn lamb. And by the way, as, as a, a, an agricultural society, this lamb would have been part of your livelihood, And you had to bring a lamb without blemish, right? Because the tendency would be like, okay, if I'm going to bring a sacrifice, let's bring this lamb with a lamb leg. It's a little bit weak. It's not fat enough. It's not going to bring me any money. I'll give God that one. And God said, no, no, no. I want you to bring your best unblemished. And so you bring this lamb that was part of your livelihood. Maybe you'd even help raise it. You'd helped it uh, be born. Like you'd taken care of this thing and you bring it to the priest. And at the, the entrance gate, the priest would look it over and say, okay, if the lamb is unblemished, you could go in. And then the priest would proceed to slit that lamb's throat. And I want you to envision this, right? You are smelling the smell of spilled blood. You are hearing the sound of animals being slaughtered. And you smell the, the, the putrid stench of burning animal flesh as it's offered on the altar. And as a person in ancient Israel, you are reminded of the very real consequences of sin and death and separation that sin brings. 
You would walk away from that moment of tabernacle worship going, wow, this is a big deal. Let me ask you this question. What are you treating casually that God calls a big deal? I think sometimes our tendency is to treat sin as a casual thing. It's not really a big deal. It doesn't really matter. What are you justifying in your life and making room for? Where are you treating sin casually? And God says, no, 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 this is a really big deal. It's not really stealing, right? When I take the company credit card and, you know, I fill up the company car, sure, and I throw a slice of pizza and a Coke on there. I just don't turn in the itemized receipt. I don't know. I'm not actually breaking the, the Ten Commandments to not steal, right? You know, it's not actually an affair. You know, we haven't slept together, but we probably have more emotionally connected conversations than we should. We complain about our spouses to each other. I stay up late and I hope they're going to be on social media so I can send them a, a private message on Instagram or send them a Snapchat. It's not, it's not actually an affair, right? What are you treating casually that God says is a really, really big deal? How does sin, how does it take root? How, how does it begin to grow? I, I think James chapter one speaks to this in a really important way. Let, let me read this for you. James chapter one, verse 13 says this. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. I mean, did you catch that? Sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Right? Go back to that question. Why can't God accept me as I am? Because if God accepts me as I am in my sin and brokenness, God basically would say, I don't care if you walk to your death. And God is never going to do that. Because sin, when it's full grown, James says, leads to death. But did you notice how he says it grows? We have these desires and we're dragged away by our desires and we're enticed. And as we're enticed, we're tempted. And that temptation gives birth to sin and sin gives birth to death. It's this, it's this slippery slope that brings us into that place of compromise. So l- let me break this down, how, how I think this happens. As a pastor, I have conversations all the time with people who come when their life is a wreck and it's a mess. And, I, and we talk, about, how'd you get here? And, and I see this pattern unfold. The first thing that happens as sin develops personally in their life is they minimize it. It's not a big deal. There's not a real consequence, right? Just like that house that's infested with mold, it looks fine, right? And, and we, we minimize these things where we're making character compromises. It's not a big deal. No one's really going to know. And after we've minimized it, then what we do is we, we rationalize it. It's not a big deal. I'm not hurting anyone. No one's even going to know. If it's not affecting them, if I'm not hurting them, let this thing just be hidden back in the dark recesses of my life. And if anyone does get hurt, it'll just be me. Can I tell you, there, there is no such thing as a sin that doesn't affect other people because when sin leads to death, as you walk that path to death and destruction, you infect everyone around you with the consequences of your sin, death, and destruction. It always bleeds over into the relationships around you. And then what happens when we minimize, when we rationalize? Here's the most dangerous part. Then we acclimatize. I want you to think about what it means to acclimate. Uh, So let me ask it this way. Um, Who was ready for snow this morning? Oh, man. 
So there's a few of you that need some help. Uh, we, we can get you the help you need. I, I was not ready for snow, right? And I got up this morning and I left my car outside. And so I was like, okay. And so I'm scraping it. And I'm like, my pants are sopping wet and my shoes are sopping wet. And I'm like, this is the day the Lord has made. Right? We're going to be rejoice, be glad in it. Thank you, Jesus, for the snow. And okay, in the big picture, it's not a big deal. Now, come January, three inches of snow is like, was that it? South Dakota is going soft, right? Now, a month ago, it was 80 degrees, so 20 feels cold. I've been putting off breaking out the winter coat. Finally, this morning, I was like, fine, I'll break out the winter coat. 20 feels cold. Now, the problem is in January, when it's 20 below, when it warms up to 20, it's like, break out the shorts. It's a heat wave. It's warmed up 40 degrees. And the reason is, right, we acclimate to winter. And so what once felt extreme now feels pretty normal. The problem is sin does the same thing. What once is extreme and we say, I would never go there. When you minimize it, when you rationalize it, then you acclimatize and what was extreme now feels normal. And, and one of the things I hear sometimes is, oh, well, this can't be that bad. I don't feel any conviction about it. Listen, sometimes when we're living in sin, we don't feel conviction, not because the spirit isn't speaking and not because God's word doesn't speak to it. We don't feel conviction because we have turned a deaf ear to the voice and the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. If you don't feel conviction about something that the Bible speaks clearly to, that is one of the most dangerous warning signs there is. But we minimize, we rationalize, and then we acclimatize. We get used to it. And it becomes our new normal, and we feel comfortable treading in places that lead us to death. Now, I thought this was insightful. Pastor Kevin Myers, in his book, Grown Up Faith, he talks about how this happens generationally. And he says, if you look at the history of the people of Israel, he said, watch how this unfolds. He said this first generation that experienced the exodus, they had this very real relational encounter with God. And so he says this first generation, he said they revered God's truth. And they could tell the story. Remember when God sent manna from heaven? And then when we got sick of manna, we complained and God brought us quail. And then we feasted on quail. And they, they recount these stories. And so the first generation reveres God's truth. But then they get to the promised land and they settle in. And, and the judges sort of take over as God's anointed leaders. And during this season... The second generation, right, they didn't live that experience. They hear the stories, but it's not quite as personal. And so where the first generation revered God's truth, the second generation begins to rewrite God's truth according to their standards or relax God's truth. So the first generation reveres, the second generation relaxes, the third generation who's even further removed from that real experience of faith begins to rewrite God's truth to their standards. I want to suggest to you that our culture is in a similar process where once the truth of God is revered, now we've sort of relaxed his standards. And, and, and we, we do what the serpent did in Genesis, right? What we say is, did God really say, right? Does the Bible actually, like those are warning signs. Those are flags that we're about to reinterpret something that God has made clear in scripture. And then the third generation, what they do is they say, uh, actually, in fact, God does not say that. Let me rewrite truth according to my standards, right? And then we want to say, I've rewritten my truth according to my standard. Why can't God just accept me? And God's going, because that path leads to death and destruction, right? So the core problem in all of this is that sin equals death and separation. We cannot free ourselves from that, right? It will hold us bondage and captive to sin, and the reality is the tabernacle is, is a foreshadowing of the salvation that's going to come in Jesus. But the tabernacle tells in a stark way of the reality of sin and the holiness of God and the consequence that sin brings. 
I mean, Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. For the people of Israel in tabernacle worship, every time they took a sacrifice to the tabernacle, they lived the reality and the sights, sounds, and smells of an animal slaughtered to pay their penalty for sin. But did you notice what the writer of Hebrews says? In Hebrews chapter 9, let me read verse 8 and 9 for you. He says, The Holy Spirit, though, was showing by this sacrificial system that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed. In other words, the way into the presence of God hadn't been made known yet. The priest could go in. You and I couldn't go in. Verse 9, this is an illustration indicating that the gifts and sacrifices were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. I could offer that animal in my place, but it never fully cleared my conscience. Later in verse 13, he says, the blood of goats and bulls made them ceremonial clean. Symbolically, I'm outward clean, but inwardly, I still desire the wrong thing. And so the theological terms for this, these offerings and sacrifices were a temporary, right? They didn't offer eternal cleansing. It had to be performed year after year after. It was temporary. It was substitutionary in the sense that that sacrificial animal died in my place. It was a temporary substitutionary sacrificial atonement. I had to offer this animal fully and completely and it would pay the price for my sin. It would atone for that wrongdoing. But the reality is that tabernacle worship was just a shadow. It was incomplete. And what the writer of Hebrews tells us is that the way into the holy place, the way into the very presence of God is made known to us in Jesus. Verse 12 says that Jesus did not enter the holy place by means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining for us what? Eternal redemption. Right where, where the sacrificial process was temporary, Jesus' death and sacrifice for us is eternal. And what we believe is that the wages of sin is death. But Jesus demonstrates his love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And where Adam fell into sin and where Adam messed up, Jesus is victorious. He lives a perfect, sinless life, dies on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins. And by the way, in the the scene of Jesus' death, when he says, it is finished, do you know what happens? The veil in the temple that separates the holy place from the rest of the temple is torn in half, symbolizing that now God is no longer contained in the holy of holies, but the way into the very presence of God is opened, not because of anything we have done, but because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Because he doesn't just clear our conscience, he actually makes us holy from the inside out. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And the solution to that core problem of sin is that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for us. So here's the truth. You are not accepted as you are. And that's good news. We are not accepted as we are. Rather, Jesus transforms us into who we were created to be. And we are made new and given a new purpose. The last thing that you want is for God to accept you as you are. Right? Imagine buying that mold-infested home again. The last thing you want to do is say, that's no big deal. We'll get past that. I'm just going to accept this house as it is. No, that, that's, 
It's going to lead to a lot of bad things, right? The last thing we want is for God to accept us as we are. Rather, God calls us into the wholeness and holiness of who he has designed and created us to be. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 10, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. And listen, I know that there are some of us here sitting in this room and deep down in the core of your being, you are desperately hungry. I don't mean physically, I mean spiritually. You are crying out, looking for something of substance and meaning and depth, all the while filled with the guilt and shame that sin brings. And what I want to tell you this morning is that in Jesus, you can be free of that. You can know the fullness and the hope and the life that he brings. And it's good news that he loves you too much to leave you as you are, but he calls you to be made new and to experience his bountiful love. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we can be called the sons and daughters of God and that is what we are. And I love how the writer of Hebrews calls out this reality that you and I are created to have deep purpose. Notice what he says in verse 14. He says, how much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, he actually cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death right? Those acts of sin, they lead to death. And yet Jesus can cleanse us from that. Catch this, so that we may serve the living God. We are not just to while away our time living in a way that seems best to us. But as I said last week, we are to surrender our plan to God's purpose to experience the eternal redemption that Jesus brings, that you can be set free from acts that lead to death. If you knew you were on a path that was leading to death and there was a way of life that was offered, why would we not take that? When it's a way of life that calls us to experience the flourishing that only Jesus can bring. So here's some things I want us to think about this week. As you think about responding to this, actually, before I get to this point, let me say this. I love how scripture says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins. And so if you have been walking a path of rebellion and rejection against God's truth and against the relational call that he has on your life, if you confess your sin to him, he is faithful and just, he offers forgiveness and invitation to come to him. And so this morning, I want us to think through these things. On on a heart level, I want you to think through, is there anything in your life that you're treating casually that God takes really seriously? Where have you minimized, rationalized, and gotten used to sin? And God's saying, no more, don't take it casually, Right? What is that? Where have you opened the door and given the enemy a foothold in your life? On a a mind level, I want you to think about Philippians 4.8. Whatever is true, whatever is excellent, if anything is praiseworthy, think about such things. What are you filling your mind with? Because I think what we fill our mind with influences the desires and what we let entice our heart. What are you filling your mind with? And finally, on the will level, I want you to reflect on Romans 12, 1 and 2. I encourage you to, to read this. Where it says, therefore, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Offer yourself wholly up to him. And it says, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. Where are we being conformed to a pattern of culture that says, you're fine as you are. It's okay. Don't be conformed to that pattern anymore. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That we can know the hope that's in Jesus. Would you pray with me this morning? Holy Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. And Father, this morning, I I am deeply grateful that you do not accept me as I am. 
God, I can be the first to confess to you that I am a sinful, broken person and I am in desperate need of the redemptive grace of you, Jesus. And Father, we all stand in need of your grace and of your mercy. We all stand in need of the eternal redemption that you bring, Jesus. So Father, in the words of Paul in Romans, let us not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Let us not take casually the things that you take very seriously, but let us take hope in the reality that a holy God, you offered up your own son that we too can be made holy and can step into life and relationship with you, Jesus. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your love and your mercy for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.